Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, host of the Main Channel Podcast, and the host of the SourceFind Asia YouTube channel. Back with another podcast, still in Manila um, on lockdown. I think this is week. This is going off of the end of week five. It's weird, like going through this whole lockdown thing. The first week was kind of like, oh, you know, it's cool to just be at home and, and relax and wake up when I want to and all that stuff. And then the second week was like, oh my God, how long is this going to go on for? Then I got super busy with the whole COVID-19. Actually, I think I recorded this episode the week when we started to get busy with Andy Church. And that kind of distracted me. But at the same time, you know, I didn't have a good routine going. Now we've been dealing with the COVID-19 products and stuff for three to four weeks. We've expanded our team. We've learned a lot about the medical supply business and industry and the certifications and the shipping process is crazy changes all the time the youtube video should be out later today i'm recording this intro after the podcast was already released so if you listen to the podcast and you're wondering why this uh, it's been changed it's because we added the intro yeah so i mean it's, it's been interesting now i'm in a routine like i try to treat my days like the way i would even if i was going outside so i wake up a shower and get, do my morning meditation and all that stuff coffee podcast and then morning meeting with the team work till x time in the afternoon workout my workouts are shorter but I still try to work out frequently and then go back to work which is like now uh, so i'll work out like i'll have I'll work out around 2, 3 p.m., have lunch, and then go back to work. So, like, I've just kind of developed a routine that's similar to what my routine would have been. The only difference is that I don't leave the apartment. So it's kind of weird, but it's been good. Like, I, I think I'm getting used to it. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going through the same emotions where you have this sort of up and down thing, and then you kind of readjust your schedule and readjust your life, and you just deal with it, you know? And I'm just super happy that we're doing so much stuff like because a lot of other projects within the company slowed down. So uh, anyways, uh, that being said, this episode, I sat down with Andy Church, my mentor. It was kind of like we hadn't we hadn't spoken on the phone. We'd spoken on the phone uh, like pretty recently, but we hadn't done a podcast for like a year and a half or two years, which is just crazy when you think about how time flies. But you know, Andy's always a great resource. Uh, this was a phenomenal episode as well, uh, talking about everything that's going on, talking about remote work, um, just sort of getting a good feel for where Andy's at with his business, and also just reviewing. Like it's always like for me when I talk to when, when I talk to Andy and I talk to some of my mentors, I'm I'm trying I'm asking questions selfishly to kind of see if I'm going in the right direction, if the decisions that I'm making and the way I'm thinking about the business is in line with what they've done because I'm obviously trying to emulate a lot of the success that they've had. Everybody has their own path. Uh, for example, Andy's managing his company from States. I'm managing mine from the Philippines. But, you know, you try to take certain tenants from people that have been there before you. So without further ado, here is the podcast with Andy Church from Inside Quality. Cheers. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me.
let me start off with what we were talking about just now and you mentioning some of the the key things that you told me about when I first approached you with this idea of working remotely, which was one of the things you mentioned was like setting up the, you know, controls around money. So yeah, having to, you know, two-factor authentication and things like that. So I had two issues with that. One, obviously most of our payments come in to Hong Kong. And then typically what would happen is I'd have to transfer money to our Chinese business account. Or when I was in China, like, you know, 360 days of the year, I literally would go to the bank and take out cash and then deposit it because that was like the fastest. And also our, our business expenses at the time weren't that large apart from, you know, when we were paying for, you know, shipments or, or you know, products, which in which case we could always wire transfer directly from our Hong Kong account. So what I found was last year when I started traveling, this is after we had already spoken, last year I traveled five months out of the year which was more than I was expecting, but I, you know, I, I traveled outside of China five months out of the year. I was struggling to do that. I was struggling to make sure that we had, you know, our expenses, our operational expenses, in in place on a monthly basis while I was gone. And then also just the you know payroll aspect of things, because the problem with transferring money to a Chinese bank account, one, we're not, we don't have a license to receive USD payments in our account. So I had to do it in a way where we paid the company that manages our our business and then they would, you know, go to the bank and then, you know, basically receive the money for us. So we were getting taxed on receiving the money, then getting taxed on on um, receiving USD and then getting taxed on receiving the money into our account. So it was just like, I, it was just frustrating. And also it wasn't an immediate thing because there was the initial wire transfer, which would take three to five days. And then, you know, having somebody go to the bank and do that whole process. And I just felt like it wasn't a sustainable thing. So I did a little bit of research and, and thanks to Michelini, I, I checked out about five or six different services. One was called Currencies Direct. I checked out TransferWise. TransferWise stopped dealing with, with Hong Kong and China. Um, and then finally, I came across what was called Aurelia Pay. It's now GoRemit. And what I really liked about GoRemit, uh, and GoRemit only works with Hong Kong registered companies. So, you know, anybody that's listening to this, you, you might not be able to use that service. Or at least you have to have a Hong Kong business account to be able to transfer money into your GoRemit. But it's like a virtual bank account. So you transfer from your Hong Kong business account to GoRemit. And then from GoRemit, you can then transfer money to a uh, WeChat, Alipay, Hong Kong, I mean, a mainland business or mainland personal account. And then the cool thing was you can add somebody into the account as a, uh, I guess, a director, but that person isn't the main controller of the account. So like I will transfer money to GoRemit and then our operations manager, Imogen, will jump in and she'll submit requests for payments. And then I have to jump in and verify those payments before they leave the account. And, you know, they charge 1.2% on each one of the transfers. And of course, there's also money lost in the conversion because you're converting Hong Kong dollars or US dollars into RNB. But it's immediate. It's a same day transfer. Um, the transfer between my Hong Kong business account to GoRemit is seamless. We only pay about a dollar or two because we're transferring Hong Kong to Hong Kong. And that was a big game changer. And, and a big part of the reason why I decided to use that service rather than other services because they had that, you know, two-factor authentication, which is what you told me to, to take into consideration. So that's, that's been really, really good for me. And we've been using them for like six to eight months. 
Yeah, that sounds good. I wasn't familiar with government. Um, to verify, when you're paying in Hong Kong, is yeah. it just a dollar or two, or is it a dollar or two plus the percentage? It's a dollar or two plus the percentage. So there's two there's two aspects. You have to pay the what they call F, FPS now, this, uh, faster payment services. So if you're paying another Hong Kong business account, but it's not the same bank. So for example, when, when I've paid you guys for your services, we both have HSBC, so there's no fees involved. But when I'm paying to another Hong Kong bank account, there's a, I think it's 15 HKD fee that is involved, but it's immediate, like it's immediate payment and they receive, they, they receive the money basically immediately after the transfer is approved. So with Regoramid, because it's not an HSBC account that I'm paying into, I think it's um, DBS or something. There's that initial uh, 15 HKD that HSBC charges me, and then Goramid itself charges 1.2%. And then, of course, there's a, there's a mid-market rate for transferring HKD into RNB. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. One, I understand your frustration uh, about the Chinese banking. Even yeah. we started off the same way. We didn't have a USD. It had to be – we could wire in renminbi. We still yeah. can, but then you don't get as good a rate. But the the, the most frustrating thing for us is um, the delay in remittance to China. No matter mm. what you do, uh, it's it's not as instant as the rest of the world. I mean, I can eat, I can wire money from Hong Kong to the states, the states to Hong Kong, the states to Europe, and it's basically instantaneous. Especially when it's on your own accounts with the same bank. But yeah. if you're wiring a client or a client's wiring you, uh, you know, you have the money in the U.S. You, or same. Uh, if we did it in the morning, Europe before they go home would have the money same day. Uh, you know, yeah. the same in Hong Kong. If I did a wire right now, tomorrow morning since we're you know, 13, 14 hours difference, when you go up tomorrow morning, the money would be in your account. That's not in China. I mean, if you're planning payments to factories, payroll, and it seems like if it's, you only have, oh, well, it's averaging two months, two weeks, or I'm sorry, it's averaging two days, you know, the money will be there in time to pay whatever. And then inevitably, that's when it takes five or seven days because there's some review. So that's beyond frustrating, but you just kind of learn to live with it. Uh, so that's one. I mean, we were there and now I just, you know, it, it, you factor in and as time goes on, you build in, you know, cushions. And, but still, you don't want to pay on behalf of clients to factories or something on large orders. The other thing, my other comment about their percentage, when it becomes very large, you start, you know, $10,000 USD at 1.2%, that's $120. And mm-hmm. so at some point, those services where it's instantaneous doesn't become as cost effective. You got to balance that with the amount of money you're talking about. Um, You know, so I would say somewhere probably, you know, if it's more than, you know, four or 5,000 us dollars per transaction, then a wire may still be better, but then you run into having services or banking accounts that are set up to provide those checks and balances. So there's a lot of moving parts and everybody's needs are different. But I think the takeaway is understanding what you want to achieve and then finding services to meet those. And then as your as one's needs change, you know, like right now, we haven't been using GoRemit, but I added this, I made a note to look into it later because it may make sense for us for some of our smaller 
transactions, but for some of our larger, it would then it would become cost prohibitive. So, you know, it's just uh, understanding and talking about the different options that are available and finding that you know one that meets particular needs. Yeah, for sure. And I think with with um, I think that's going to be a running theme throughout this podcast is, you know, while our businesses are quite similar for people that don't know, Andy runs Inside Quality, a quality inspection company that we use. And you also do some sourcing for some of your clients. For us, like a lot of our businesses, obviously we run a sourcing company, but for us, a lot of the payments our clients do direct to factories. So we aren't really necessarily sending large wire transfers on a regular basis. Whereas for me, it's more of the operational cost. And we have a small team in China. So it's like, we're never really, tra- in Goromed, we're never really transferring more than about four to $5,000 at a time. If it's ever something more than that, then I, I obviously try to look into, I, like, I don't really pay factory direct from Goromed unless it's like a sample or something like that. So yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. It's like when the when the amount gets larger, like a good example is we do work with Cirque du Soleil and, you know, we're talking orders that are $50,000, $60,000, you know, multiple times throughout the year. I, I would never use GoRemit for that because you know, we would lose so much money in that process. So yeah, it, it, makes, it makes more sense for us in that, that aspect. Going back to some of the differences, I think, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit. How has uh, this the, the coronavirus uh, affected your business in in the last two months? I think before you mentioned that it was there was a direct effect for anybody, any of the service service providers and suppliers and stuff like that in China a month ago. There was a, a month and a half ago. It was, it was direct effect, and then there's a second wave coming now that it's it's going to spread outside of China and, and has you know gone to the rest of the world. While China is actually in a better place than they were. Uh, a month or so ago. Well, there's been there's been several. I mean, there's numerous effects, but I think one of the biggest is when I started Insight six years ago this month. One of my ethos was about the culture. Um, you know, I I have had the opportunity to work for, with and for some amazing companies and, and managers, and some that weren't so positive. And I wanted to make sure that our team knew that we exist. We only exist because of their hard work and that they're rewarded. And so through all this, my biggest concern has been my team and their families and their health. And I think that them knowing that and understanding that is was the most critical thing. Fortunately, everybody's okay and uh, to this day and all their extended families. So to me, that, that, was, that was number one. Number two is in the East, not just China, but I think all of Asia, majority of Asia, remote work is a foreign concept. Obviously, we do inspections and factory audits, and those are historically not something that could be done remotely, although we've looked at possibly changes in protocol and using the factory to you know, video and stuff like that. But data entry, any kind of work, billing, banking, finances, HR, things that could be done remotely. We had already um, had some of our team that, for whatever reasons, health, uh, children, travel, whatnot, had worked remotely occasionally, but not like uh, they have the last six weeks. And so not only for us, but I think companies of all sizes and of all 
types of ownership, be it a, a Chinese, uh, local Chinese business, foreign-owned entities like us, or you know, the, um, or whatnot, and sizes, all different sizes. Now, remote work is a real possibility going forward, which is going to change the need for office space and you know all those kind of things. So, I think that's another very potentially positive outcome of all this. Uh, third is just the disruption in the supply chain. There have been lots of moves over the last 18, 24 months uh, to diversify out of China for American manufacturers due to the tariff situation and the trade wars going on between China and the States. Um, so I think that all this virus effect is just added to the need to have a China plus one. No place is ever going to replace China. There's lots of other resources for conversation about the trade wars and moving manufacturing. But I think that this is just another example of why it's important not to have uh, all the eggs in one basket and look at, you know, different um, supply chain areas. So, you know, so, I mean, those are the three big takeaways for me. Fourth, uh, I mean, there's several more is, is contingency planning. So many companies don't have uh, contingency planning. You can't plan for something like this, but uh, you can, there's companies that are in like South China. We experienced typhoons when I was there, you know, and what do you do if there's a signal 10 in, in Hong Kong or, you know, whatever, and you can't go to work. Well, this is that to the nth degree, but it goes along with what's contingency planning. If there's storms, blackouts, uh, and so I think that that's a big one. And part of that is what are the financial resources available via savings that the business has, the owner's personal saving. I mean, how do you make payroll with three months of no revenue at worst case scenario and, and things like that. So contingency planning that includes everything from remote operations, backup, how do you access your data in the cloud or servers or wherever you may have it, financials, you know, how do you, if uh, you can't go to the bank in the scenario you, you mentioned earlier in, you know, the old days, but even now sometimes we, there are situations where you have to go to a bank, so if the bank's closed, what do you do? You know, what? so what are what are all the different planning scenarios that, uh, <laughs> and this has certainly brought that to light. And now that we're facing the same thing in the West that in the U.S., specifically where I am in Dallas, that, that China went through six weeks ago. I mean, just as of midnight this morning, so eight hours ago, all restaurants in Dallas County where I live is, you know, carry out delivery only. So, uh, you know, there are my colleagues and uh, team members in China are telling me how they survived and giving me advice on what to do. So they've been there, done that. And then one final point, and I think you and I talked about this earlier, Rico, is that you know, there was people that, you know, oh, that's in the West. or Sorry, that's in the East. That's in China. It's not going to affect us six weeks yeah. ago. Well, Definitely. how how fast the shoe can, uh, you know, drop and, you know, the, the, you better, it, you know, got to be careful what you wish for or what you say um, because you never know when you're going to be in that pace with the same circumstances and I'm not one of those people and I know you're not but we certainly have in our network and people that we know that are eating their own words now and it certainly don't it doesn't make me happy to, to see that but it's one of those things you better be careful what you wish upon others. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that like when in the two videos that I, I made for the YouTube channel 
Uh, one was a little bit over a month ago when I was still in Indonesia, about to come to the Philippines. I wanted to remind people that, like, you know, we're talking about human beings and, you know, however you might feel about the Chinese government and their policies, like, you know, you have over 1.4 billion people. Like, most of those people are just normal people that don't really have a say or don't really feel the same way necessarily. They just kind of follow the, the stuff that the government tells them to do. So, you know, I, I felt like that was, that was a missing thing is people were missing the human component of it. They were kind of like seeing the whole Asia or the whole China as the government, right? Whereas like for me and you who have friends and we have, you know, friends and, and, and employees in China, people that we have direct relationships with and we care about, I'm seeing it from the human side. I'm worried about, you know, my staff. I'm worried about my friends. Not even just Chinese people. I'm worried about my foreign friends that live in China as well. So, like, I was just trying to trying to get that point across without being too political in my video. I think now that you know everybody else is feeling it, I think there's there's an aspect of that where you know they're, they're kind of looking around and, and maybe realizing that we're we're connected globally. Like, it doesn't even if it's not a direct relationship. The fact is, you know, all of the products that people consume are coming from China anyway. So if China suffers, the rest of the world suffers, you know, the, from an economic standpoint, not just from, you know, a relationship or personal standpoint. Totally agree. There used to be a phrase, I don't remember exactly, but as the U.S., you know, blows the rest of the world, you know, um, weather, you know, or, you know, there's something along those lines where, you know, however the U.S. Uh, reacts, the rest of the world, you know, has repercussions. And now, I mean, it, it's not necessarily, you know, China, you know, goes one way, the rest of the world, re it follows. Now it's so integrated that if anybody does anything in the reaction, right? I mean, yeah. could smaller countries like Italy and France and the implications there. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just so much bigger than us. And to see the blame between countries, between citizens of countries or political parties in the states right now. I mean, it's just, this isn't a time or place. And in a year or two, when this is all gone, people can, to their heart's content, they want to go back and, and figure it out so they can blame somebody, go be it. But that's not how I want to spend my energy, either pontificating on it or, or uh, trying to figure it out. I just know that this is affecting me personally. It's affecting dang near everybody in my life. I mean, in a non-business standpoint, my mother was doing a fly in this morning um, to spend a week and be here for my two-year-old son's birthday on Sunday. And, you know, she had to cancel her trip, rightfully so, um, with the health implications and, and being in her late 70s, almost 80. You know, there's no reason for her to be traveling. But, you know, that's a personal thing. It's not business-related. And at the end of the day, we're all human and people forget that. And, you know, we're more alike than we are different. Some of the points that you just mentioned earlier in terms of remote work, like some of the, I guess, the implications in people having to have second options. It's interesting that that happened because like for me, I, I guess it's it's sort of, a lot of people don't understand it when I try to explain, like even people in China, other people that run business, businesses in China, I'm not talking about foreigners, but, you know, local people and even the the company that manages our taxes and stuff like that. Like when I was trying to explain <laughs> my plan last year of, of living abroad while managing the business, it's kind of, it is a very foreign concept, but something that we did that ironically is helping us a lot right now is when I started traveling a lot last year, I started to notice issues with productivity specifically 
it seemed like a lot of my employees just didn't want to go to the office when I wasn't there because I've always been like first person in the office, last person to leave. So, you know, when I wasn't there, they were still doing their work. You know, things were still getting done. I only started to notice that people weren't at the office because we would ship in certain things or not, not even if a sample shipment went in, like the person, like our operations manager is usually the person whose name is on every package. So she would know when something comes in and she would go in to receive it. But it was situations where I wanted to send something on the same day that was coming from somewhere in Guangzhou. And then I would contact, uh, you know, somebody from the office and say, Hey, I want to send this over, you know, who's going to receive it. And then they'll be like, well, we're not, I'm not in the office. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and then uh, there was a couple issues where my business partner was in town and I was out of the office because I was doing something else, a business meeting or whatever, and he would go to the office and then nobody was there. So I, in my initial response was, was to be angry and frustrated and you know, try to force people to get there and try to maybe implement fines and things like that. And then I started to think to myself, you know, I feel like, Again, going back to your point of us being more similar than we are different, there is a sort of, at least with the millennial generation, and I think now it's Gen, Gen Z, there is an aspect of people leaning more into wanting to be location independent. Um, of course, you see the rise of location independent entrepreneurs and things like that. Companies that have been location independent from the beginning, startups in, 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 in San Francisco and stuff like Zapier. And then I just kind of thought about it from the side of like my employees. It's a little bit hypocritical for me, even though I am the owner of the business and everything. It's like, it's a little bit hypocritical for me to be like, Hey guys, I'm going to be traveling six months out of the year and living in other countries and working remotely, but you guys have to stay in the office. Then, you know, I kind of thought, why don't I just lean into this and try to, you know, we can still work remotely. There's still certain things that we have to do whether it's factory inspections and things like that. But that doesn't necessarily require somebody to be in the office on a daily basis. As long as they're getting their work done, most of the stuff that we do is done through you know, Slack and Google Drive and some of the project management software that we use. So when I got back to China in um, October, I sat down with my operations manager and I said, you know what, let's just go 100% remote. Everybody that works, we already, even our part-time staff at the time because there were some people that we hired that were not necessarily in Guangzhou. They were kind of already working remotely. So I said, why don't we just implement this as a company policy? It might even be attractive to a lot of people to be able to work from home or work from somewhere else. Of course, we have some, you know, some restrictions and things like that. Like we don't want somebody to just come and work for us and then travel every two weeks for you know six months. That's definitely not going to be productive. But I, yeah, I leaned into it. So having done that and stress tested and tweaked it and we're still figuring it out it actually was very normal for my team to go back to work during this time period when they couldn't actually be in Guangzhou yeah we were ahead of the curve who knew it right I mean yeah that's uh it's a good point and the thing is it it's never going to completely figure it out it's always going to evolve and we were similar circumstance but not completely remote I mean I mentioned earlier that a team you know um in some cases working remote because of their positions were able to. And so, I mean, this is one of those things you just figured out, but fortunately we were able to figure it out 
uh, we being you and me and a lot of the people like us that before we needed to, before we were forced to. So it wasn't this struggle to all of a sudden, how do you share documents? Because you already had it set up. So, or how do you communicate when, you know, using, you know, you already had Slack set up. So things like that were similar circumstances and fully on board. When you were talking, one of the things made me think about the difference in generations. You know, I'm old, I'm old school and I still like a mouse, right? So I use a laptop and you know, that's almost old school. Now everybody can do everything on their phone. Well, man, I got reading glasses. I'm getting old. I, the phone's too small. So I still yeah, use I might, a mouse. I, I, might, need, I still, might need some glasses soon as well. Like I, I did an eye <laughs> test not too long ago and I wasn't impressed. <laughs> my, my 2020 vision isn't what it used to be. so we still we get things done and everybody's tools are you know maybe a little bit different but at the end of the day it's the you know the deliverable are you getting your job done and if you do it one way and i do it the other but the outcome is the same it's kind of like you know math in different parts of the world they teach math one way and you know in a different way in another part but the output's the same so that's what's important as long as the work can get done um, then you have the systems and tools in place to to enable the work to be done and then you know and check it as needed then you're good to go yeah you you mentioned obviously having the the china plus one you know that's also something that we've been you know slowly especially in the last year i think with the tariffs and everything like we've had way more requests from clients to source product from outside of china and one of my goals for this year was to start doing, part of that is me being in the philippines I also plan on on going to Vietnam. I don't know how realistic that is with the current climate of things, but um, I have some contacts in Vietnam. I have some contacts now in Indonesia. When I was in Indonesia for Chinese New Year, that was part of it as well. What are your thoughts on that? Like, have you explored other countries besides China? And and what's what's your experience so far? Uh, definitely, we have explored and are working in other countries besides China. I mean, we set up initially in China because that's where my background was and more than a decade, almost, uh, it was over 12 years living in Shenzhen. And I mean, that's just where we started. And it made sense for so many different reasons. About two and a half years ago is before the tariffs, we started um, doing more work in Vietnam. And now, I mean, we're in Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, India. So we have all those countries of presence. The tariffs certainly made an impact in inquiries but one of the biggest you know things and is that there isn't one single country in the world that's going to be able to take over all of china's production nothing course, is going yeah. to wholesale or you know move production and across the board is going to move to one region or one country the closest population wise would be india they don't have the infrastructure and the, the expertise in so many areas i mean they're strong in a lot of categories but not all so vietnam i mean like uh, cambodia's population is what, less than 20 million and Viet, you know indonesia is uh, about the biggest southeast asian country i think uh, population wise so there's going to be a lot more go to Indonesia. We're, we're doing inspections this week and one of our large clients uh, has weekly shipments out of Indonesia. So, I mean, I think that looking at product categories, what other countries are strong or are there places in the West? Where is the goods being shipped to? In the U.S., there's a big resurgence in plastics because it can be very automated. Anything that's plastic injection molding, shipping, especially bigger like totes and coolers, they've been made in the States for a long time, but even more so now in some smaller widgets. I have a, a friend, an American friend of mine who's been in plastics 
in China for about 20 years and with a Chinese investor set up a, a factory in Tennessee, you know, so there are going to be opportunities in some less labor intensive categories for production to move to the West, I believe, be it Europe or just North America. But other than that, it's going to be a percentage. When I first heard China plus one was probably around 2005 or so, well, it's 15 years ago with wow. the big retailer that we are working with, uh, with my old, the company I worked with to move me to China, that was a quality service provider. And they just, I mean, the, the plus one was if 10% of a category was produced outside of China, they just wanted contingency, right? In case of natural disaster tariffs or, you know, whatever the scenario was. And that, started off really strong and then it realized that there wasn't anywhere that was capable in 15 2005 15 years ago of, of quite the uh production as china was i mean apparel some lower lower investment and lower technological products yes but less so in electronics or things that you know which much more involved and so that kind of fell by the wayside for that retailer and then they, you know they restarted that a few years ago just right before the tariff started and same i mean they just needed to diversify and part of that was china's plan the 2025 plan which now is going to who knows how that'll be evolved and changed but they wanted to have their economy less reliant on manufacturing and so yeah. um, there's lots of benefits of of having um, whether it's the the 10% or the Pareto rule, 80-20, 80% of what a company buys come out of China and the 20% somewhere else. So, you know, they have the opportunity to, to be a mover and a shaker in a economy or a country that has very low um, production or capabilities. An example would be Myanmar, Ethiopia. Those are two countries where there's lots of soft lines, apparel products coming out of, but that is still very small percentage-wise. But the opportunity for a company to be one of their first or, well, I mean, now would be second a second wave into those countries can provide a lot of opportunity. But there's a ton of challenges, I mean, from the lack of infrastructure, the lack of know-how, from shipping, testing needs, quality. And so, I mean, there's there's a ton of challenges. Um, and so there's a lot of big, a lot of patience that needs to come along with being the first, but um, and even if you're not the first, Vietnam has been producing for decades in shoes and apparel and some really strong categories. If you move, when you move from an established factory, or established relationship with a factory to starting over, you know, it's frustrating. And it's not just because they're not educated. I mean, these are you know, people who know their business, but change is difficult. So, you know, it's, a, it's not as easy as just flipping the switch and, one day you move everything from factory A to factory B. Heck, even in China, if you go move production down the street from one factory to another, it's, the headaches involved with that can be enormous. Yeah. yeah, and I had a struggle with uh, with one of our clients last year with that specifically, especially when it's a client that has you know multiple SKUs, you know, there's and they've had a long relationship with a certain factory. So even though it's not working for them right now, it's so difficult to shift because you've developed a, a workflow and you know you're worried about quality and things like that. I, from a sourcing perspective, I actually have a two-part question. and I, I guess I'll remind you, but from a sourcing perspective, what have you found are the ideal products 
and I guess quantities of orders to 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 be able to source in Vietnam or Indonesia. And then the second part would be: Have you found any differences in the way you perform your inspections, or even just you know quality in general, which between inspecting with factories uh, in China versus Southeast Asia? Uh, well, the first part about the categories in Vietnam, we're doing uh, we're doing jewelry, wood, apparel, bags, uh, things like that. Not a lot of metal. Well, I mean, jewelry is some metals, but like stainless steel or you know heavier metals or toolboxes or things like that. So that's what we're doing out of Vietnam currently for our clients. And then in Indonesia, we're doing a lot of wood, playground sets, wood flooring. Uh, well, just a lot of wood that we're doing out of Indonesia, not a lot of other categories at this time for us from an inspection standpoint. From a quality standpoint, I, I think that we have pretty good training systems in place and methodology. And so our inspectors are uh, working much the same way around the world because we do inspections in the States and Europe and not just Asia, you know, China. And so our processes internally are the same. And so our output is the same. It's a little, you know, we need obviously translation and, and things in local languages because while English may be written in read and written, the comprehension level isn't as great as the local language, so ensuring that our SOPs and specifications and whatnot are um, local languages needed for our team are important. But I think so that having to translate quality, all, all of the, the SOPs into the local language, right? Yeah, I mean, at least, if not all our SOPs, the, the portions that pertain to um, the, the team on the ground. Yeah, and I think that quality begins with the buy. So that's a phrase I didn't coin, but I've used repeatedly over the years since somebody, I don't know if it was a client or colleague that I heard many moons ago, uh, use that phrase. And that truly, I believe that that quality issues that happen at new factories, whether that's the factory down the street from your current supplier in the same country or around the world or, you know, just an hour plane later away or something happened. The quality issues happened because expectations weren't set. Communication didn't effectively take place via PO specifications. And so that is one of the biggest challenges is that oftentimes our clients have become lazy in how they communicate to a factory. And so they start off very strong and then things kind of digress over time and become a little simpler. Uh, not every uh, detail is communicated because the factory just knows it. But yeah. when you start over, every little detail needs to be communicated. And so it's a good habit annually to look and make sure that what is set in place initially in communication, specifications, purchase orders still is happening because that's one of the biggest challenges we see is that we end up needing to be much more hands-on initially with the factories where our clients didn't engage us maybe at that level uh, with their established relationships. That's a really good point because uh, I was just, as you were talking, I just thought about a client recently. We've been working with this client for like four years and then we've been working with the same factory for about three and, you know, they're fantastic. They're really well run business and, you know, 
nine times out of 10, when we do inspections, there are very, very minimal issues. So, and then there's been one or two orders that my client placed that were kind of rushed orders and he just didn't, there were smaller orders as well. So he didn't do the inspection, but I had to, I had to hop on a call with him a couple of weeks ago and it was, you know, a slightly larger order. And he was like, well, you know, like our last few inspections, things were fine. So I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think we need to do an inspection this time around. And I was like, "Mm, I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but you know, you could start doing that and then we could have five fantastic orders with them. And then all it takes is one of these orders to, you know, really tank, (laughs) tank your business. So, you know, do you want to start to go down that route? And, you know, he then said, yeah, you know what, you're right. Like that's, Sometimes people just need to be reminded of the risks involved with that. Like, and as you said, sometimes clients get comfortable; they get lazy a little bit with with factories that they've been working with for for a long time. Yep, you know, it's uh, nobody likes to hear that, but that's reality. And so, it's just is doing a reality check. And where are you today? Even if you're not looking at moving production to another facility or factory, it's important to reevaluate. And are you following your SOP or your client's SOP? That's always a good good measure where i mean at the last time we had a last time we had a call i think was about two years ago how how has your business evolved beyond obviously the coronavirus situation but just in general in the last two years what have you been up to uh business-wise you also had you had you had a child a couple years ago as well so obviously your personal life has has changed but i guess just an update for the for the audience who, who is familiar with you yeah. Wow. It's been two years since we talked on a uh, uh, podcast. Time yeah, flies. No, yeah. So yeah, you uh, you did mention Tyler Jefferson, my son, was born uh, be two years ago on this coming Sunday, and uh, that has um, changed my life in many respects and had direct correlation on business. Um, you know, it's what's important. We talked earlier on the. Uh, top of the call about the coronavirus or COVID-19, how that's changed. Uh, you know, it's human human interaction and it's humans that are affected. And so my son has put things in perspective. It's not all about me or the dollar. I mean, it, it never really was, but I think, you know, I, I realized how selfish I was. And so it's made me appreciate my team and what they're going through and the ones uh, on my team who have gotten married some of my first employees on my team had got married, had a child, you know, now a different appreciation for what they went through. So I'm a little more empathetic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of the demands of having a young, a young child at home. So my team, some of my team now who their spouse is pregnant or whatnot are, are excited. They get to reap the benefit of my understanding. So that's one. Um, our business, I mentioned you, uh, earlier in a separate call about we had a great 2019 January 2020 was off to a fantastic start and then you know kind of bam so we had a good couple of years we've invested a lot back into uh, resources our team and building out our own software system for our internal use and reporting and so uh, we're continuing to grow the, one of the things I mentioned earlier was our expansion outside of China we did not do that initially the first few years uh, at all our focus was strictly on china and right or wrong maybe we could expand it faster outside of china but i wanted to do things the right way and and have the right 
procedures and policies and practices in place before we started bringing on other countries. And so the big thing last two years is now we're we're in, I don't know, about eight or 10 countries. We have some team in Europe and moved to in, you know, nice space in uh, Dallas where our office is and a couple people here. So we're continuing to grow. Uh, our focus is still largely on companies who are manufacturing private brand retail product, but we're working directly with several retailers that are all nine, couple or 10 figures. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with some larger retailers as uh, their plus one. So small projects for them. Um, so we're just in continuing to have fun, uh, which in this climate right now hasn't been necessarily the easiest thing to do. But, you know, I, I shared uh, with my team yesterday, uh, you know, just some good news and stories and ask them to do the same and make sure that we laugh every day and, and realize that what we do and why we do it is so that we can take care of our families. And, you know, as long as that I enjoy, uh, which I can't see it changing at all because I love what I do and I love working with other entrepreneurs and business owners and passionate about quality. As long as I enjoy that and, and able to take care of my team or help support them and allow them to give them the tools to to support their their families and we'll just keep having fun yeah now going talking about 2019 versus 20 uh beginning of 2020 same here like 2019 was my best was our best year as a company you know we expanded um in multiple areas we had our you know marketing intern come in for four months, three months. Uh, who was with me in China and in the Philippines. We hired a sales guy, so you know I've outsourced a lot of the sort of you know work that I was doing myself because I I was the main salesperson before. And 2020 started off really well, and then of course uh, we, we we got hit. But I'm still I'm still pretty optimistic for a couple of different reasons. I think that. You know, this is this is going to be a time when a lot of people will be leaning more on their contacts when they can't physically go to China themselves. Um, and I think we kind of talked about that earlier, especially for for us, our co- our core clientele is still based mostly like ninety percent on e-commerce. So, you know, I think that that of course, uh, you know, the orders might be a little bit slower at some stage, but I I think a lot of people are still going to be wanting to order products online because they can't go to stores or they don't want to go to stores um, with, with the lockdown situation. So it's just, it's an interesting time because I, there's a certain, there's a certain optimism that I have about this year, but at the same time with the, the way this year started has been, been, been kind of strange. You mentioned expanding to other countries. How did you, how did you go about doing that? Now that you're in eight to 10 countries, what was your, what were the first steps you took to, to expand your business outside of China? Um, it was client-driven in having a need in Vietnam, South Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, wherever. And so we partnered with companies that had a presence in those countries and uh, ideally not one in China. So we could work and provide services in for China. And they helped us in the country that we needed assistance with. And then that that's how we started originally. And we had a client say, hey, I need you to do an inspection in South Korea. I need you to find a factory in South Korea or uh, additional factories or wherever it may be. And then that led to us having, you know, evolving into uh, our own team uh, expansion in those countries. 
and then um, pursuing setting up an entity and, and that type of thing. But initially, you know, some countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, were uh, at some point in the future, I anticipate we would have our own people. But now we have a really strong partner in those countries that they don't have any presence in Vietnam and Asia, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, China, Taiwan, South Korea. So we're able to provide services for them in those countries. So it's strategic partnerships. I mean, with you and I, uh, for an example, I mean, you mentioned earlier that we work together. And so, um, you know, sourcing e-commerce projects, which don't fit our model or areas that we can uh, introduce somebody to you. And when you have a need for an inspection in Wenzhou or Ningbo or someplace where we have people, um, you know, we're able to work together. And so I think leveraging those partnerships uh, is much the same uh, while we're doing that in China. It's the same process uh, when you're working with somebody outside, you, know, you go through a vetting process to make sure their values and and service levels match your own. That's the critical piece, I think. Strategic partnerships is extremely important. Yeah, I think that's been, in terms of business expansion for us, that's been a huge thing because we have certain partners. Uh, one guy is based in Hong Kong, but he's originally from Ireland. Uh, his name is Alan. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. And then we have Mark in, in Australia, and we have a, another guy in, in South America. And essentially, they are sourcing agents as well and like you said projects that really don't make sense for them to take on and they don't have the team in china to do that they they come to us and it's also it opened us up to a client base that we didn't have before so i think that's extremely important and then just in general obviously me you know working with you guys and, and being able to forge a, a solid relationship and you know other like shipping companies that we work with and stuff like that being able to get favorable payment terms uh which helps us with cash flow like that's that's been a huge huge help for us as a company um what advice do you have because I, I could imagine somebody listening to this right now who's maybe in the e-commerce space maybe not your typical client but like is doing you know mid five figure orders per month or every couple of months, let's say, you know, fifty thousand, forty thousand dollars and whatever product is thinking, maybe I want to start sourcing in, you know, Vietnam or somewhere else. Do you think that's the right client clientele? Because when like during this whole coronavirus thing and last year, but specifically during the whole cur- the coronavirus when it really hit in China and the factories weren't open. I started leaning on my contacts in Indonesia and Vietnam to see if we could explore certain products and maybe only one, I I sent them like seven different products and maybe only one or two kind of fit the criteria. But at the same time, I felt like the, it wasn't going to be that much advantageous for my clients considering the size of their orders. Like there was going to be more. Those are pretty good size orders. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, those are pretty good size orders. Yeah. You know, then, well, we work with companies of all sizes. I love working with the small entrepreneurs. They tend to take more education and time than some of our more mature uh, clients who have been in, you know, quality or sourcing for long, you know, decade or decades. So we work with the companies of all sizes, just like you. Our mix is just flip flopped. I mean, ninety percent of your business e-commerce and mine is 90% non-e-commerce. So, you know, I, I guess the and the reason I share that is it's things apply to both, whether yeah. it's a small guy or a big guy, because a small guy often has more passion about his orders 
than our larger clients. So it all starts with documentation. Man, before you start looking at moving to a new factory in another country, a new factory period, what are what is your current factory doing well? What are you communicating to them from your purchase order, your specifications, your everything? How do you communicate to them and what um, and how? I mean, you know, not necessarily email, but, you know, documentations and files and, you know, just assume that right now you're sending a CAD drawing to a factory. Well, maybe this other factory doesn't have anybody that does CAD, right? So is understanding everything that you that somebody is currently providing to a factory and then making a list of what they do well and what they could improve upon. And the reason I believe the reason that exercise is really valuable because as you look at a new factory, this is an area to address those deficiencies and also make sure that they're checking all the boxes where you now just take for granted where it's good, 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 good. So it's really evaluating what you're doing with your existing service provider, your factory supplier, and also service provider, your existing factory, what do you want to achieve by moving? So why are you moving? Is it to augment existing supply as you grow? Is it to get around, you know, to minimize impact of tariffs? Is it the factories going, you know, why are you moving? And then begin to vet factories. There is, do they have the capability, the basics? Do they have the capability to say, to produce what they say they do? Do they have the license to export? Do they have capacity? Do they want your business? You know, the lack of reply from factories is an indication. Not, maybe it's not that they're so overwhelmed. Maybe they don't, you're too small or they just don't, they don't want to deal with you. Maybe they don't deal with somebody from the state of Texas. I mean, you know, that's something, there are still those kind of issues out there in society and with factory owners. Sometimes they don't want to deal with a certain country or something and right or wrong, respect it, move on. Don't waste your energy trying to get something out of somebody who doesn't want your business. So you don't think there's, you don't think there's an ideal type of client to move to, you know, some of the other countries outside of China, like in terms of size of orders? No, I think that anybody who's buying product and China should look at, does it make sense to possibly look at a factory in other countries? And they, and don't set your heart on a country. Man, I want to move. I, Miramar's opening up. I want to be, I want to produce my widget in Miramar. Well, you know what? There isn't any of your widget being made in Miramar. Are you really wanting to be the first? There's, I mean, you know, that doesn't make sense. But if there's a lot of your widget already being made in Miramar, then go, that factory or factories may already have, the ability to produce to the level that you desire. They already have an experience communicating and stuff. So, no, I don't think that there's a minimum order of either. Uh, you know, I mean, look, if you're buying a hundred of something, that's different. But if you're spending the kind of money that you mentioned earlier on a purchase order or an order of forty thousand dollar order every two months, I mean, that's uh, you know what's forty thousand times six. That's two. That's a quarter million dollars a year in ordering. That's big. I mean, even if you're just placing one $40,000 order a year, I think it only uh, warrants looking at the opportunities to possibly produce in other countries. But I think you need to be realistic. If you're ordering 100 or something or 500, I mean, the quantities need, you know, same as, you know, in China when you reach out to a factory and they're not interested in 5,000, maybe drop to zero and a factory in 
Vietnam or Cambodia or Indonesia or something might make 500 or something. But if it's 500 plastic balls that cost a dollar, I mean, you know, really is that the best use of your resources and trying to find a new factory in another country? Probably not. You, you know, if, if, as long as your current service provider is still making those goods. So long-winded answer to your question. No, I don't think there's a minimum order. I think it just needs to be realistic. And if you're ordering from China and the quantities are being produced in China, then probably factories in other countries would also take those same order quantities. I guess then the the question, because I mean, obviously I've, I'm struggling with this situation right now. I guess then the question would be, how do you go about finding those strategic partners? Because I, you know, it's not like, at least from what I've seen so far, it's not like you could just Google search <laughs> some of these guys. You know, All right. Well, when you say strategic partners, I mean, it, to me and you are strategic partners. partners. Yeah. S of A and Insider strategic sourcing partners, strategic yeah. partners. When somebody, a client of ours is coming to us and says, how do I, how do they find a new factory in Indonesia? I think the questions that we ask them, oh, why are you moving? What do you hope to achieve? What do you, mm-hmm. and so we, and if we don't have the capability in, somebody wants to move something in New Zealand and we don't have the capability to do anything there, the strategic partner that would be necessary would be something that would be up to Insight to find somebody to help meet our clients' needs and hopefully we would manage that. So I think that the strategic partnership is two different things. If a client comes to us, a potential client wants us to help them make something in another country or find the capability to make something in another country, whether existing or new, and we don't have that capability, we'll either try to find that capability or we'll introduce them to somebody that does. Okay. So I tell it the way I see it. Maybe it's the way, you know, I used to say the way it is. Well, it's the way it is because the way I see it doesn't mean I can't evolve. But if we're not a good fit for somebody, I'm not going to make this fit to, to be a good fit. It's a two-way street. I alluded that to earlier, you know, a factory doesn't want your business. I mean, maybe it's for a variety of reasons and a good factory may steer you to somebody that could and same with us. I mean, we're not a perfect fit for everybody. And if we can't meet their needs, then we'll try to help them find somebody that can, whether that's you or, you know, uh, other, a lot of other companies that we both know of that are, you know, maybe owned by Westerner owned and run by Westerner or not. So uh, does that answer your question, Rico? Yeah, it does. That makes sense. No, it's just I, I'm, okay, I'm right. like I'm, I'm sort of asking questions for myself as well. So I'm just kind of listening, learning, yeah. t- taking notes. Um, no, that's really good. Um, I actually got lost thinking about it now. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, is there anything that we haven't covered? Because I, I think I, I might move into the closing questions that you wanted to talk about. Is there anything? No, that we uh, I think we're good. Yeah, maybe the I have I have to run in a few, so maybe uh, uh, closing questions are good. Okay, cool. So, I mean, obviously, I typically ask, uh, you know, three books, podcasts, and that kind of stuff, but I've asked you that question before. What resources are you taking in right now? Like, what have you been taking in in the last year that has really changed the way you think about something or has impacted you? Uh, The biggest single improved thing that I went through last year or did last year was I was invited to apply to... Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which uh, I believe it's only in the U.S. at this point, but it evolved out of uh, 10,000 small women businesses that they, this program they started a decade or so ago. And it was the opportunity to, in a classroom setting over the period of about 12 weeks, 
with 30 other small business owners, strategize, uh, under, just take our, give us the tools, break down our business, and then give us the tools to take our businesses to the next level. And it's all about growing your business and scaling it with the objective to add employees and better the economy. So it's funded by largely by Goldman Sachs, but also the federal government. And so that was a great opportunity for me last year. It was it was um, uh, it was phenomenal to use a, a big you know, word. Uh, mm-hmm. The relationships. The you and I talked separately about the uh, the need or the, the desire the of, that of I have to have reaching out to yeah. other people for help, yeah. other business owners for help. Yeah, and and I. I didn't do. I haven't done a very good job of that in my career, let alone my when I started my business on my own. And so, really, just embracing that and owning it and realizing how important that is. And that's businesses of any level, whether you're you're selling ten thousand dollars worth of product a year on Amazon or a million. The the benefit that can come with strategizing, having discussions with other business owners in or outside of your field and sharing the challenges, the successes, the challenges are as important as the successes, or I should say the successes and sharing those are as important as the challenges because we often don't celebrate wins. And whether that's win as a new client, meeting a uh, stretch financial goal, whatever it may be, increasing productivity, those are very, very important. So for me, the biggest thing out of 2019 was going through and graduating from the Goldman Sachs um, 10,000 Small Businesses Program. It's part of my email signature. I'm uh, emphatically uh, a supporter of the program and have made uh, 29 new friends and champions in the Dallas area that are all global too. But so anyway, that, that was the big one. You know, I'm a, I'm an avid book reader. Uh, I didn't, I can't even remember the title I'm reading of right now. The power of 10 or no, sorry, the 10 X rule was a big book I just finished, but you know, I, I have to look at my reading list because I don't remember names of titles after I read it other than some things. I'm not a big, the joy of the last two years, but really the last year, my son talking and now talking back has been <laughs> this is a highlight too. Papa, no, no Papa. So <laughs> kind of makes me, it prepares me for, uh, you know, when the clients say no, you know, or something. So, you know, the, the big thing is, I think is self-improvement is my takeaway. We talked about it in quality for my entire career, continuous improvement it kind of, yeah, everybody talks, you know, says it, but really doing it are two different things. And so looking at every day, how can I do, how can I do something better, more efficient and share, help others? That's the other thing, man. I'm, I'm a huge believer well, in giving you've, back. Yeah. You've yeah. always, you've always been like that. And I think that I was going to, I was going to comment this, like not, not to cut you off, but when you were saying that you're not really, you weren't really that good at asking other people for help. I don't think that's necessarily true because you've always like, at least with, since I've known you, you've always been good with networking and, and being around other entrepreneurs. So if you were not necessarily directly asking for help, I still think that the networking aspect, you've always been somebody that's willing to sit down with somebody from whatever level. Cause I remember when we first met, you didn't know who I was, but we were able to sit down and you listened to me about 
sort of the way I was starting, well, uh, growing the business through, you know, content marketing. And I, I saw you start to implement some of those things. So, you know, I, I think you've always been one, obviously a giver, like a giving back to, to the community around you, but from a networking aspect, I think you have received value from other people just by sitting down and having conversations. Well, thank you, Rico. And you're right. I do. I get more out of that, but I don't, I think my point last year or we were talking about last year and stuff is I don't think I asked for help. And maybe if I did, it wasn't direct enough. And so for me, it has not only been giving, but also not being too shy or, or meek enough to ask. I mean, I don't know. Nobody has all the answers, whether it's, you know, the premier president of, you know, prime minister of a country, CEO of a business, a entrepreneur of any level, nobody has all the answers. And I don't think that I have done didn't do uh, you know a good enough job asking for help or advice, but that's changed because I you know I, I just thought oh I'll figure it out and then I wouldn't do it or something and so yeah thank you for the compliment but I've had a lot of good people that I've learned from and if I can just give a little bit of that back I feel it comes back you know multifold so continuous improvement continuing to be a better person and help others I think is a is a motto that can't serve anybody wrong. The last question I would ask you would be, where do you see, obviously with the, you know, the, the coronavirus situation, sir, it's very hard to predict, but like kind of what were your overall plans for the next year, two years, three years uh, in your personal life and your business? Well, what, what were you planning to accomplish, I guess? Yeah, so it, usually this time every year, right around the U.S. tax time is uh, April 15th is the dreaded date. Usually look to sit down and do one, three, and five-year plans and and um, kind of working through that right now. And I see that these struggles that we face uh, or are facing in the first and second quarter, first half of 2020 in, in a year will be in the rearview mirror and will have made us uh, as a company inside a stronger service provider a stronger company cultural wise and with our team so uh you know that's a big one for you know short term longer term i think we'll continue to grow and add countries to our service coverage area uh add team as needed i don't have a a set oh i want 100 employees or 1200 or something in in 10 years i think that we i want a controlled growth that we don't lose our our edge and customer service and our service level to our, our clients. Um, many who have become, you know, like family and friends uh, and our friends. I mean, and so uh, I just think can continue growth. I have, uh, I have some pretty good growth uh, desires and objectives that, you know, that uh, I want to see over the next few years. And, We'll continue to strive for those. On a personal note, I think that uh, we're done with one. So just watching my two-year-old uh, grow, you know, grow up over the next few years and, and uh, continue to grow, and just starting to play, you know, soccer and um, soon in a, you know, a little kitty league or toddler league, which is the ball's about a third of his size. So you know, that's that's just fun and just. Um, Realizing that it's not all about work. I may be available 24-7 just like you, or I like to tell people 20 so I've got to sleep a few hours, but um, <laughs> it's just perspective and, and balancing it. Um, you know, the, the whole book's four-hour work week, and we have a lot of, you know, some of our network, you know, 
for me, it's not living on the beach, but being able to work wherever, whenever, you know, that's going to be a continual priority for me. And um, I just want to, I want to enjoy life and, and continue to give back. And so that's, uh, that's what I see the next ahead the next few years. Well, Andy, um, you know, thank you for being on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. And, you know, I really value these conversations. I don't know if you know how much I do, but, you know, I hope that our relationship continues to grow. I hope to see you in person soon, hopefully, uh, whether it's in the Philippines or in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I think everybody listening to this is, is going to take a lot of value from it. I know I did. And, uh, yeah, I'll let, I'll let you go for now. All right. Well, great, Rico. I echo those same sentiments and look forward to seeing you uh, as soon as travel allows. Have a great day. All right. Thanks. Bye. And if you want to reach out to us, that's sourcefindasia.com slash made in China. If you want to reach out to you, send an email directly. It's podcast at sourcefindasia.com. Of course, we have the Source Find Asia YouTube channel. Check out our updates on the coronavirus, how that's affecting business in China. We have two videos at the moment. I'm going to be recording a few more videos about, you know, how to effectively source products and figure and manage inventory and things like that during this, you know, the crisis. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Uh, this high profile caught you shopping on Canal. Yeah. I guess it makes sense. It seems phony as your style. Your hair and your nails just as phony as your smile. Fake eyelashes, you drew your eyebrows. And make a brother ass, do you pride yourself? You make up like a mask, trying to hide yourself. It seems on the outside, you thinking you the shit. But it's a soul that's inside that you ain't even knew exists. So you so out of touch that the world mistreats you. Rich niggas fuck you, and broke niggas beat you. Hope that this will reach you when you understand that your value ain't determined by another man. Cause right now you let them brothers get the upper hand.